Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today, we have episode 270 for May 2nd, 2022. And we've got a new show for you today. I've got plenty of security and uh, privacy stories to cover for you. Uh, but I got to start with one just quick note. And I don't, I don't have a story about this, but I've, I feel like I need to somehow address it. And that is Elon Musk buying Twitter. Uh, the guy's a genius. I mean, there's just no two ways around that. That doesn't mean he's smart, <laughs> necessarily. I don't really know if he knows what he's getting himself into here. I think he's going to quickly learn, or at least I hope he's going to quickly learn, that hosting a social media site and having to deal with quote-unquote free speech is not easy. Uh, we'll see how this goes. I, I, I don't have good feelings about it, to be perfectly honest. I would love to have an edit button, but I don't know if that's worth uh, all the other pain and, and suffering that may come along with Elon Musk owning Twitter. We'll we'll see how it goes. I mean, Twitter's probably my number one social media presence. So I've worked hard to get you know the the listeners that I have now, and I've been trying to grow that this year. I would hate to have to throw all of that out and start over somewhere else. That would not be good. So anyway, felt I should address it. I don't. I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't know if Elon knows what's going to happen with this. So we'll just have to wait and see. I. I honestly, I think it's even possible that it may still fall through. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a done deal, uh, even though the, the major stockholders uh, have agreed to it. I think that there's still regulatory hurdles that you might have to get over. There may be a revolt within the company. We'll see. Uh, it may not be a done deal. And one little bit of kind of kind of meta news. I've got a couple contests. One is going on right now, and one's going to be coming up soon. I'll tell you more about the second one uh, after the news today. But if you haven't already, you can still enter to win a free year of Proton Mail's Plus service. And all you got to do is go sign up for the free Proton Mail account and send me an email at proton at firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. I'll put that in the show notes so it's easy to find. Just shoot me an email there that will let me know that you've got a Proton account, and I will give away 10 free one-year subscriptions to their uh, first level plus service, uh, which is like, I don't know, 50 bucks a year or something like that. So, you know, it's nice. It's, I want you to try it out. Uh, if you didn't hear my interview with Andy Yen, the CEO of Proton, you might want to go back and check that out. That was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that's what kind of prompted me to do this. So again, just shoot me an email from your, from your Proton account, your Proton mail account, uh, and that will get you entered. The U.S. and 60 other countries or 59 other countries have signed this Declaration for the Future of the Internet. And it sounds laudable, but uh, I'm not so sure what that's really going to mean. And I'm going to read a statement from the EFF on that that pretty much lines up with my thinking. So uh, we're talking about how Russia itself is being hacked thanks to them invading Ukraine. Uh, it's kind of a flipping of the coin on them because a lot of hacking comes from Russia and is focused out of Russia because Putin lets that happen. So it's really kind of flipped everything on its head here. So we'll talk about what's going on there. There's another nasty Java screw up that could cause a lot of problems. Hopefully it will get fixed soon, but it's kind of like log for shell. It's one of those things that's everywhere potentially, and it could be a while before you know, all the nooks and crannies of the internet figure out that they need to update something. And, oh yeah, I didn't realize that thing runs Java, so now I got to update that. We'll talk about that. I ran across an interesting article about Celebrite. This is the company that purports to being able to hack into iPhones, which are notoriously difficult to hack into. They've got tools for this that they sell supposedly only to the quote-unquote good guys. In other words, law enforcement. 
and I assume intelligence agencies. But it's a pretty detailed article uh, on what this tool can currently do. Someone got a hold of some internal documents on this. And so it's kind of a long article, but I thought that would be really interesting to read through. Then I'm going to talk about a report how Amazon and third parties are using, um, I don't want to say the word, the A word, <laughs> A-L-E-X-A, uh, how they're using voice assistant data to give you ads. Uh, and while that's probably not super surprising, I think this article makes some interesting points. Microsoft is apparently going to be adding a free VPN for their Edge browser. I still don't recommend you use Edge browser, and I'm not sure how good this free VPN will be, but I'll talk about my thoughts there. Another article is going to talk about how Facebook has recently been caught or discovered to be collecting a lot of really personal information for students filling out financial aid forms. And I'll follow that up with another article from Facebook. Uh, some Somebody talked to some of the privacy engineers that work there, and they're basically saying, I don't think we could control this data if we wanted to. <laughs> so that's kind of scary. And then finally, I'll talk about uh, how Google has now made it possible to remove your phone number from its search results and potentially some other personal information. And that will lead neatly into my tip of the week, which is how to pick the most private browser. I've talked a lot about kind of the most secure slash private browser, but at the end of the day, most browsers are probably secure enough for most people, at least the most popular ones. But privacy is where there's a real differentiation. So I'm going to tell you today what my top private browser is. So a lot of great things to talk about. Let's get to the news. All right, first up, the United States and a bunch of other nations, several dozen, have created and signed this document that they're calling the Declaration for the Future of the Internet, which sounds, you know, pretty high and mighty, and, and it is, and I, I've read it, it's like three pages long, it's pretty dense, but it's, you know, not that long, and it sounds really good, I mean, you know, as, a, as you might expect from something called a declaration, you know, it says a lot of really important things and makes a lot of you know, high-minded claims uh, about things the way they should be and, you know, all the rights and liberties and yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's a declaration. It sounds really good. I mean, I'm, I'm not here to say that it's bad, but let me just read this article from the EFF and then uh, I'll give you a, a few more thoughts. And this is their response to the White House publishing this statement. The White House announced today that 61 countries have signed the Declaration for the Future of the Internet. The high-level vision and principles expressed in the Declaration to have a single global network that is truly open, fosters competition, respects privacy and inclusion, and protects human rights and fundamental freedoms of all people are laudable. But clearly, they are aspirational. Implementing these principles will require many signatory countries to change their current practices, which includes censoring online speech of marginalized communities, failing to build out affordable high-speed internet, using malware and mass surveillance to spy on users, fostering misinformation, secretly collecting personal information, and pressuring big tech firms to police online speech. We are pleased that the Declaration lays out important standards for achieving a free, open, and human rights-protecting internet. Hopefully, the signatories in the Declaration will deliver on the Declaration's promises by aligning their practices, policies, and laws with its principles. And honestly, just like the Declaration of Independence here in the United States, you know, when that was written at the time, we were definitely not <laughs> following the principles outlined in that document. It was a great idea, 
the principles were well worth capturing and putting forth as something that we are going to strive for, uh, you know, to make a more perfect union. But we weren't there yet. And like that, we are definitely not there with this declaration for the internet stuff. So anyway, if you're interested, read it. You know, it is definitely aspirational. And it's good to see these ideas kind of, you know, laid bare and put out there and posted on the wall as this is what we want things to be like. But we've got a long way to go before we get there. So anyway, it's nice. We'll see if anything actually comes from that. All right, next up, this is an article from Wired. It's about how Russia is now being hacked, which again, is kind of reverse normal. Usually a lot of hacking comes out of Russia. And of course, this is all related to the, the war with Ukraine. So, And by the way, thanks to the patron who posted this for me. Some of my patrons shoot me article links from time to time. And while I've often seen many of them, some of them I didn't. And this was one that I had not seen yet. So thanks to the patron who shot this article to me. So it goes like this. The orders are issued like clockwork. Every day, often around 5 a.m. local time, the Telegram channel housing Ukraine's unprecedented quote-unquote IT army of hackers buzzes with a new list of targets. The volunteer group has been knocking Russian websites offline using wave after wave of distributed denial of service or DDoS attacks, which flood websites with traffic requests and make them inaccessible since the war has started. Russian online payment services, government departments, aviation companies, and food delivery firms have all been targeted by the IT army as it aims to disrupt everyday life in Russia. And this is a quote from one of the hackers on the Telegram channel. They said, quote, Russians have noticed regular hitches in the work of TV streaming services today, unquote. The IT Army's actions were just the start. Since Russia invaded Ukraine at the end of February, the country has faced an unprecedented barrage of hacking activity. Hacktivists, Ukrainian forces, and outsiders from all around the world who are taking part in the IT Army have targeted Russia and its business. DDoS attacks make up the bulk of the action, but researchers have spotted ransomware that's designed to target Russia and have been hunting for bugs in Russian systems, which could lead to more sophisticated attacks. The attacks against Russia stand in sharp contrast to recent history. Many cyber criminals and ransomware groups have links to Russia and don't target the nation. Now it's being opened up. And this is a quote from Stefano de Blasi, a cyber threat intelligence analyst at security firm Digital Shadows. He says, quote, Russia is typically considered one of those countries where cyber attacks come from and not go to, unquote. At the start of the war, DDoS was unrelenting. Record levels of DDoS attacks were recorded during the first three months of 2022, according to analysis from Russian cybersecurity company Kaspersky. Both Russia and Ukraine used DDoS to try to disrupt each other, but the efforts against Russia have been more innovative and prolonged. Ukrainian tech companies transformed the puzzle game 2048 into a simple way to launch DDoS attacks and have developed tools to allow anyone to join the action, irrespective of their technical knowledge. The channel's operators urge people to use VPNs to disguise their location and help avoid their target's DDoS protections. Toward the end of April, the IT Army launched its own website that lists whether its targets are online or have been taken down and includes technical guides. Dmitro Budorin, the CEO of Ukrainian cybersecurity startup Hacken, says DDoS has been useful for helping Ukrainians contribute to the war effort in other ways than fighting and says that both sides have improved their attacks and defense. He admits DDoS may not have a huge impact on the war, though. And this is a quote from him. He says, quote, it doesn't have a lot of effects with respect to the end goal, and the end goal is to stop the war, unquote. Since Russia began its full-scale invasion, the country's hackers have been caught trying to disrupt power systems in Ukraine, deploying wiper malware, which... Uh, 
deletes files on your computer system, and launching predictable disruption attacks against the Ukrainian government. However, Ukraine officials now say that they have seen a drop in the activity. And this is a quote from Yuri, oh my gosh, I'm going to get this wrong, Shyhol, uh, the, the head of Ukrainian cybersecurity agency. And he says, quote, the quality decreased recently as the enemy cannot prepare as much as they were able to prepare. The enemy now mostly spends time on protecting themselves because it turns out their systems are also vulnerable, unquote. Bedorin says that beyond pivoting his company's technology to help launch DDoS attacks, it also created a bug bounty program for people to find and report security flaws in Russian systems. More than 3,000 reports have been made, he says. He claims this includes details of leaked databases, login information, and more severe instances where code can be run remotely on Russian systems. The company validates the vulnerabilities and passes them on to the Ukrainian authorities, Budoran says. And a quote from him again, he says, quote, you don't go through the main door, you go through the regional offices. There are so many bugs, so many open windows, unquote. While cyber warfare throughout the conflict may not have been as obvious or have had the impact some predicted, some incidents may happen without publicity or outsider knowledge. And this is a quote from de Blasi. He says, quote, I think the most sophisticated operations going on right now are espionage to find out what the opponent is trying to do, wants to do, and will do next. We may have to wait years before we discover anything about that, unquote. Visibly, hacktivists and others attacking Russia have obtained and published hundreds of gigabytes of Russian data and millions of emails. The files may help unravel parts of the Russian state. All right, the article goes on. If you're interested, uh, of course, there's a link in the show notes. But again, I, I, I find that this is just very interesting if you can kind of step away from the horror of the of the war and kind of look at it dispassionately and from a historical perspective this is really kind of the first big war involving nations with a lot of cyber capability and it's interesting to see what has happened and honestly what has not happened either attacks that were thought you know could be successful weren't or because there is this mutual vulnerability you know each side might be worried about doing something really nasty to the other side that could just as easily come back on them. But also the fact that it kind of makes, it's kind of warriors without borders, right? It, it's, it's the internet itself kind of opens this up to the possibility of people contributing to this effort on either side, honestly, from anywhere on the planet. And because hacking involves often creating automated hacking tools, you only need a very small subset of really gifted hackers to create those tools. And then it's, it's trivial, honestly, in a lot of these cases to start using these tools and participate in this effort. Now, I'm absolutely not telling any of you out there to do that. I think it's quite possible that if you screwed up, you could be yourself a target, either by law enforcement or by Russia and, and or other hackers somewhere else. It, it's, it's not something you're going to want to do. Um, but it's interesting just to know that it's something that you could do. All right, let's move on. There's been another Java related vulnerability found that's really, really bad that could, could cause a lot of problems. And as always, Bruce Schneier has got a nice terse take on it. And this is quoting from a much larger article from Ars Technica. And it says, the vulnerability which Oracle patched on Tuesday affects the company's implementation of the elliptic curve digital signature algorithm in Java versions 15 and above. ECDSA, which is the short form of what I just read, is an algorithm that uses the principles of elliptic curve cryptography to authenticate mess messages digitally. ECDSA signatures rely on a pseudo-random number, typically located as K, that's used to derive two additional numbers, R and S. 
To verify a signature as valid, a party must check the equation involving R and S, the signer's public key, and a cryptographic hash of the message. When both sides of the equation are equal, the signature is valid. For the process to work correctly, neither R nor S can ever be zero. That's because one side of the equation is R, and the other is multiplied by R and a value from S. If the values are both zero, the verification check translates into zero equals zero, which will be true regardless of the additional values. That means an adversary only needs to submit a blank signature to pass the verification check successfully. Guess which check Java forgot? That's right, Java's implementation of ECDSA signature verification didn't check if R or S were zero. So you could produce a signature value in which they are both zero, appropriately encoded, and Java would accept it as a valid signature for any message or for any public key, the digital equivalent of a blank ID card. So I saw some other article liken this to Doctor Who's authentication badge, which I'm not a Doctor Who fan, but apparently Doctor Who has kind of this magical blank piece of paper that he puts in a wallet that he can flip out and show has his credentials whenever you, he walks up to somebody. But it's some sort of this weird magical psychic thing where whoever's viewing it sees what they want to see. They, so whatever a valid credential would look like, that's what they see. That's kind of what's going on here. It's blank in the sense that it's it, it's a value of zero. It's trivial to do. And by doing this, because they screwed up in the implementation of the cryptographic procedure, it means that anything is valid. So this is why having things that are open source is crucial so that you can get different sets of eyes on this. I actually don't know if this particular algorithm was open source. I'd, I'd have to look back and see how this was found. But uh, it's a big problem, and it's obviously a, a massive security hole. And so now the race is on to see how quickly all the Java versions out there can get patched and updated to fix this bug before somebody starts exploiting it. And just given the sheer volume of servers out there that are running Java, that's a race that's going to be lost by the good guys. So let's just hope that you know all the most important systems get patched quickly. All right, next up, this article is kind of long. It's from 9to5Mac, and it's talking about a report that someone someone got a hold of some internal documents at this company called Celebrite. And, and so they were able to see at least what Celebrite claims that they can do with respect to hacking iPhones. And iPhones are pretty darn secure. I mean, Apple has gone to great lengths to prevent somebody from being able to hack into that device if it's got, you know, if it's got a proper password protection uh, or pin protection on the screen. And there's, it's just a cat and mouse game. You know, over the years, you know, it's gone back and forth as to whether the bad guys could get in. And every time the bad guys find a way in, Apple fixes that hole and then it becomes harder. Uh, in fact, companies that buy zero-day vulnerabilities pay super top dollar for anything that will get you into an iPhone. And I mean, hundreds of thousands, uh, sometimes I think even in the low millions of dollars for somebody who finds a security exploit that will get into a phone because it's just that hard. And they're so popular, uh, particularly among people with, you know, lots of money, uh, which tend to be high value targets. It's worth a lot of money for these guys to uh, to get a hold of these hacks. So anyway, uh, let me read you this article and it's going to go to some detail about uh, what phones are vulnerable, which I thought you guys might find interesting as well. Celebrite's iPhone cracking kit allows the company's clients to access virtually all of the private data stored on a phone, in some cases, even if the phone is locked. 
but the exact capabilities depend on both the model of the iPhone and the version of the and the version of iOS it is running. We managed to get access to the user documentation for a recent version of the kit to see what it could do. Celebrite makes a range of hardware and software kits designed to unlock both iPhones and Android smartphones and extract most of the data on them. Some versions are sold to commercial companies, while Celebrite Premium is, in theory, sold only to law enforcement agencies. However, the exact position is unclear. For example, the company recently revealed that it was that it has over 2,800 U.S. government customers, many of which would not fall within what would normally think of as quote-unquote law enforcement. And this is a, a quote from, I guess, this company statement. It says, investigators with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, Ser Wildlife Service frequently work to thwart a variety of environmental offenses from illegal deforestation to hunting without a license. While these are real crimes, they're not typically associated with the invasive iPhone hacking tools. But the Fish and Wildlife agents are among the increasingly broad set of government employees who can now break into encrypted phones and siphon off mounds of data with technology purchased from the surveillance company Celebrite. The list includes many that would seem far removed from intelligence collection or law enforcement, like the Departments of Agriculture, Education, Veterans Affairs, and Housing and Urban Development, the Social Security Administration, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And then back to the article. Other Celebrite clients include blue-chip companies wanting to conduct internal investigations and cybersecurity companies. The flagship phone cracking kit offered by the company is known as Celebrite Premium. The software allows users to extract either specific target data, for example, messages or photos, or the complete file system, which contains almost all user data, including keychain passwords, which then gives the user the ability to access most services you use. That's what the company says about it. And this is, I guess, a quote from their documentation. It says... By performing full file system and physical extractions, you can get much more data than what is possible through a logical extraction and access highly protected areas such as the iOS keychain or the secure folder. Accessing third-party application data, stored passwords and tokens, chat conversations, location data, email attachments, system logs, as well as deleted content increases your chances of finding the incriminating evidence. And back to the article, back in February, the company kept most of its advanced capabilities in-house, but the webpage relating to this has since disappeared, and it seems from the documentation we reviewed that Celebrite Premium can now do everything that CAS used to do. We should note that the documentation we have obtained predates the launch of the iPhone 13, and at that time, the company apparently had no ability to access the iPhone 12 either. And so now uh, I'm going to read through basically different sections of the document explaining which phones are vulnerable to what kind of attack. Uh, and so the first one is full access even when locked with any supported iOS version. And it says Celebrite Premium could unlock and gain access to the full file system of the following models of phone even when protected by a passcode with the unlocking time dependent on the complexity of the passcode. And I'll talk about that in a minute. It doesn't matter which supported iOS version the phone is running the company can unlock the device and access everything. And it lists off the phones, and it says iPhone 4S, iPhone 5, 5S, 6, 6S, SE, 7, 8, and uh, X, or 10. And then there's a, there's a happens to be a star next to the 4S and the 5S that says, interestingly, in-house unlocking is required for these three models if you are running iOS 5 or iOS 6, while Celebrite Premium allows clients to unlock devices directly if running iOS 7 or later. The reason these models can be cracked regardless of iOS version is because of unpatchable vulnerabilities in these models. One of these was revealed with the Checkmate exploit and another flaw discovered in the secure enclave later the same year. This too cannot be patched. 
And then the next section is full access even when locked with older iOS versions. And there are three models of iPhone the kit can unlock if they're running any version of iOS up to iOS 13.7. That's the iPhone XR, iPhone XS, and iPhone 11. And then there's another section about full access only with passcode. The same three models running iOS 14 or iOS 15 cannot be unlocked by the company, either with Celebrite Premium or the company's in-house resources. However, if clients have the passcode of the phone, then full file system access is available. And then it lists again the iPhone XR, XS, and 11. Law enforcement may or may not have the power needed to force a suspect to reveal their passcode. This depends on the country and the jurisdiction. The next... Uh, category is brute force unlocking is very time consuming. Unlocking devices requires the kit to brute force password. This relies on being able to disable the lockouts Apple applies to repeated passcode attempts, but even so is a slow process due to the delays imposed prior to complete lockout. The company warns that the process can be very time consuming, with one example in the user guide referencing a rate of a little over 100 attempts per day. However, the kit does allow users to enter any personal data that they have for the phone's owner, such as date of birth and other important dates, such as a significant other's birthday. These will be used to generate initial attempts before resorting to brute force. This information serves to underline the importance of protecting even relatively trivial personal data. And then finally, one more section, autonomous mode. Celebrite brute force unlocking used to require the phone to be left connected to the kit until it succeeded. Celebrite premium, however, provides an autonomous mode where the phone can be disconnected once the attack is underway. This is because the kit manages to install the software running the attack directly on the iPhone itself, even though the phone is locked. And this must be another quote from their documentation. It says, Celebrite's autonomous brute force capability runs on automated dictionary attack directly on the device itself. After the process is initiated, the target device can be disconnected from Celebrite Premium, therefore allowing the autonomous brute force process to run on multiple devices simultaneously. And one last thing from the article, it says, It's worth stressing that all Celebrite attacks require physical access to the phone, unlike NSO Pegasus spyware, which can be deployed remotely, including zero-click options. So I thought that was rather fascinating. But a couple of key points there are... The brute force attacking, which brute force attacking, you know, let's, let's say you've got a four-digit pin code that you use to lock your phone. There are 10,000 possible combinations of four digits. So a brute force attack involves basically entering every possible combination until you find the right one. So 0, 0, 0, 0, then 0, 0, 0, 1, 0, 0, 0, 2, etc. At 100 attempts per day, it would take 100 days to attempt all possible combinations of four digits. And, you know, statistically, that means on average, you'd probably get through somewhere in about half that time. Because at some point, you're going to get lucky and you're going to guess that you don't necessarily have to go through all of them to get to the right one. Unless, you know, unless they're starting on all zeros and your passcode happens to be 9999. Though I, I'm guessing that their software will try all of those immediately. You know, one, two, three, four, you know, all ones, all twos. I'm sure that those get tried immediately. And like the article says... <laughs> the, the tool actually has a way for you to enter some, you know, important dates and numbers related to that user, the, which it will try those and combinations of those uh, immediately as well before it tries to brute force. And so what's going on under the covers is Apple has implemented protections against brute forcing. So if, if you, you probably notice this, if you've ever tried to get into your phone and failed a few times in a row or more likely, you know, one of your kids or grandkids, you know, young toddlers or you know, very young kids get a hold of it and they know what's on that phone. And they want to play Candy Crush. And so they're trying to break your code and they fail. And then suddenly you get your phone back and it's like, 
please wait one hour until you try again. And you're locked out of your own phone because someone, not you, tried to get into your phone. So it's those kind of things that, that, that make, you know, how many guesses they can do take a lot longer, which is great. It's a great protection, but they've also figured out a way around the, the, the limitation. Like you can set up your phone to lock it completely, actually lock it and wipe it, like erase the phone completely if, if 10 attempts in a row fail. And so they figured out a way to block that or to reset that counter so that that never gets hit. But it does still get a lot slower, meaning that it still takes them a long time to try every possible guess. So as far as the phone models, you know, I guess you'll notice that the iPhone 12 and iPhone 13 are not in that list. That probably means that at least as of the time this documentation was written, that those phones were not able to be hacked by this tool. But these guys are working hard on it, and and they are buying exploits from other places for potentially millions of dollars, uh, and it may be only a matter of time. All right, let's move on. Uh, this is another report from 9to5Mac, and I, I quote these guys a lot because I, I watch that site a lot, and they end up quoting other articles, which is fine. Um, so this is actually the real report here came from The Verge, but this is a little bit shorter version, so I actually just went with this one. And this is about you know Amazon using voice control data for its voice assistant to target ads more than seems like they should be. And this article, like all of them, says the A-L-E-X-A word over and over again. And if you have one of these products, it's going to keep triggering your device if you're listening to it without headphones. So instead of A-L-E-X-A, I'm going to say Alexander. So just know that when I say Alexander, I really mean A-L-E-X-A. All right. A new study digging into how Amazon uses Alexander voice recordings from its customers has concluded that the company and third parties leverage the audio to deliver targeted ads directly on Echo smart speakers as well as the web. That's in contrast to Apple not using Siri recordings for ads and sharing voice data being turned off by default on devices like HomePod and iPhone since 2019. However, Amazon contends the new research is based on quote-unquote inaccurate inferences or, or speculation. So reported by The Verge, the new study called Your Echoes Are Heard, Tracking, Profiling, and Ad Targeting in the Amazon Smart Speaker Ecosystem was done by researchers at the University of Washington, UC Davis, UC Irvine, and and Northeastern University. At a high level, the research concluded that Amazon and third parties are collecting and sharing Alexander voice interactions from Echo speakers with up to 41 different advertising partners. And the data is used to, quote unquote, inform infer user interests, and then deliver targeted ads on both Echo speakers as well as across the web. This voice data appears to be highly lucrative, with the study claiming smart speaker interaction gets, quote, 30 times higher ad bids from advertisers, unquote. 30 times is a lot. Responding to The Verge, Amazon spokesperson Lauren Raimhild says the company does use Alexander voice data to replace relevant ads on Amazon and other places it it has ads. And a quote from her, she says, similar to what you'd experience if you made a purchase on Amazon.com or requested a song through Amazon Music, if you use Alexander to order paper towels or play a song on Amazon Music, the record of that purchase or song play may inform relevant ads shown on Amazon or other sites where Amazon places ads, unquote. Raymield also confirmed it uses targeted ads directly on its Echo smart speakers when customers use quote-unquote ad-supported premium content. The study said it found it was only processed transcripts of Alexander data that were being shared, not raw audio, which lines up with what Amazon says. But the research raised concerns about the transparency of how Amazon collects and shares Alexander voice data. Allegedly, all third-party Alexander skills 
that collect personal info are supposed to publish privacy policies and follow them. And this must be a quote from The Verge that says, however, the report found that those policies were spotty at best, with more than 70% of the skills it examined not even mentioning Alexander or Amazon, and only 10 skills, which is 2.2%, being clear about data collection practices in their privacy policies. And back to the article, that led the researchers to conclude that, quote, there is a clear unmet need for greater transparency and control over data collection, sharing, and use by smart speaker platforms as well as third-party skills supported on them, unquote. For its part, Amazon's Reimheld said, quote, Many of the conclusions in this research are based on inaccurate inferences or speculation by the authors and do not accurately reflect how Alexander works. We are not in the business of selling our customers personal information, and we do not share Alexander requests with advertising networks, unquote. All right, so I guess, you know, take that for what you will. But the bottom line here is that, like so many other companies, Amazon has decided that it wants to milk these sorts of user inputs to the fullest extent it can to make money. I mean, why, you know, at a capitalist society uh, where shareholders are expecting you to grow revenue constantly, why wouldn't you? Because there's no regulation against it. And also unsurprisingly, since there's no regulations around this, the privacy policies are loose, not well uh, enforced. And there are so many of these companies that, that these guys are working with and, you know, partners of those companies that they're working with, that it's just kind of impossible to police all these things. Everyone can kind of get away with it because it's just impossible logistically to corral it all. It's like herding cats. Now, the article did mention that Apple doesn't do this, so they don't use any of this sound stuff for ads. I don't think they've ever done that, but they were like several other of these, and I talked about this when this happened years ago when this kind of came out and caused, caused a big you know, hubbub. And because the way this works is, in most cases, is you it, this device, this little smart speaker or whatever, records your voice, ships it quickly up to the cloud, which where it's quickly analyzed and turned into text, and then some computer processes that text and sends back a response. Now, Apple, to its credit, with the processing power that it now has on its iPhones, is actually doing a lot of this on the device now. It doesn't even leave the device, which is great. But anyway, um, to, to hone these systems and make sure they're working right, they would have humans take some of these random snippets and compare what they heard the person say uh, to what was interpreted, and they use that kind of information to make things better. I get that. I understand that. But the key thing there is they need to be transparent that they're doing that, which they weren't. A lot of these other companies, including Apple, I mean, it was probably in the fine print somewhere, but it was shocking, unfortunately, to a lot of people who found out about it because nobody reads the fine print. <laughs> but Apple, anyway, Apple has stopped doing that. You have to opt into that now, and you'll see a pop-up, I think, on major software upgrades or when you mess around with Siri uh, if... if uh, It'll ask you, you know, would you like us to help improve the service or something like that? And that's what they're talking about. All right, next up, a quick article here from PC Mag. It's about Microsoft adding a free VPN to their Edge browser. And it says, a Microsoft support page has revealed that the Edge browser is set to receive a security upgrade in the form of a built-in VPN powered by Cloudflare. As XDA Developers reports, and I guess that's a website or a something, the VPN feature is called Microsoft Edge Secure Network and is expected to work in a similar way to Cloudflare's 1.1.1.1 service. When enabled, it will encrypt all data and keep your location private by using a virtual IP address. Cloudflare will only collect diagnostic and support data for the service, and that data will be deleted every 25 hours. The support page explains how Secure Network is a free service, but data, is, but data use is limited to 1 gigabyte per month. 
It's unclear if Microsoft is going to offer a way to increase the data limit with his subscription. Perhaps it will become an extra feature offered with an active OneDrive or Microsoft 365 subscription. It seems as though the support page appeared earlier than Microsoft intended as nobody, not even those signed up to the Microsoft Insider program, can try the VPN yet. Free VPN services are nothing new, but Microsoft offering one by default in the browser that's installed on every copy of Windows will concern other VPN providers. Why would consumers download another free VPN when they already have access to one on their PC? Microsoft Edge isn't exactly a popular browser choice, and the feature set uh, of this built-in VPN will be quite limited, so the impact on other services should be minimal. Anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, we're going to talk about my <laughs> my uh, top private browser today, and uh, spoiler alert, it's not going to be Microsoft Edge, even if it did have a VPN built in. But the other thing to realize is, is, is while most of us do access the internet through our browsers, our applications that are running on our phones and uh, our computers are also talking to the internet in the background all the time. Now, those communications had better be encrypted and probably are. Uh, but nevertheless, it's, this would only cover what you're doing on your web browser. And only if you're using Microsoft Edge, if you were also running Chrome or Firefox or something else uh, next to that, it wouldn't work for that at all. But at the end of the day, I mean, more privacy is better. So, you know, if Microsoft does this, maybe other ones will start doing it too. All right, now I've got a couple articles here on Facebook, which are, and most of my articles about Facebook are almost universally disturbing and disappointing. And these are in those categories. So first up from The Verge, and this is about Facebook collecting data from people applying for student loans. And this is actually a shortened version of what is a much, much longer expose in the markup. So if this is interesting to you at all, I would read the longer version. And as always, there's a link in the show notes to that. Uh, but let me read you uh, The Verge's short take on that. If you applied for financial aid through Free Application for Federal Student Aid, or FAFSA, in the U.S. in early 2022, there's a very good chance some personal information was provided to a platform that's completely irrelevant to the process. Facebook. This report from the markup exposed that, as of early January 2022, the U.S. Department of Education sent data from website visitors to Facebook, potentially including information submitted on forms like first and last name, country, phone number, and email address, via the Metapixel tracking pixel. Meta, in this case, being the company Meta, which is what Facebook used to be. And here's the kicker. This was done even if the person didn't have a Facebook account. The markup also notes that this data collection began, quote, even before the user logged in to studentaid.gov, unquote. When asked about this tracking, a spokesperson for the Department of Education initially denied that it was taking place, despite the markup finding code that clearly indicates otherwise. Federal Student Aid COO Richard Cordray then fessed up, telling the publication that the data gathering was, quote, part of a March 22nd advertising campaign, unquote, which had, quote, unquote, inadvertently sent the personal data to Facebook. The data sharing feature was then turned off. Cordray also said that the data, quote, was automatically anonymized and neither FSA nor Facebook used any of it for any purpose, unquote, without explaining how they were able to verify that. The markup notes that it's unknown how much data was pulled in from students. Yet, even though these students didn't voluntarily agree to Facebook's privacy policy, namely because FAFSA didn't tell them they were being tracked, the publication says this policy allows the company to retain such data for years. So anyway, uh, if you want the full article, you can read it, but I think that gives you the gist of it. And it's just just wrong. I mean, th but here's the problem, and here's probably what happened here. Facebook and Google are, are advertising companies. They do marketing. Uh, and so when you want to 
put up an ad somewhere and get it in front of a lot of people's faces, you give money to Google and Facebook. And then they say, okay, here's what you do to know how, how many people you're bringing in and to get some, you know, analytics and statistics based on, you know, how many people are going to be clicking on this link and yada, yada, yada for your advertising campaign. Cause you know, you want to know how successful this was, right? Uh, then you put our little tracking pixel on your web page. And so it's a little piece of embedded code. And if that does all this stuff, I mean, it's gotta be just like this Swiss army knife of a tool that as soon as you put this little bit of code in there, it does all sorts of stuff, including hoovering up as much personal data as is humanly possible to be used later, who knows where and by whom, uh, for advertising. I mean, used by Facebook, but then they'll sell access to that data to anybody who wants it. And so it's quite possible that whoever put together this website and started wanted to do this advertising campaign for federal financial aid or whatever, or whatever the campaign was about, you know, just contracted with Google and Google said, yeah, great. Great. Here's what, you know, we'll work with you. Here's how you do it. Here's a little to-do list for you. And that includes, you know, make, put this little JavaScript snippet on your, on your website so that we can give you analytics, yada, yada, yada. And somewhere buried in terms of service and who knows where it probably says by doing this, you're allowing us to collect a whole bunch of data and probably allowing us to keep that data, et cetera, et cetera. So I thought this next article was a, was a perfect compliment to that one. Uh, and this is from Apple Insider. And it says, Facebook privacy engineers warn that the company would have a hard time committing to privacy laws as it largely has no idea how its systems use the data it collects. As global regulators begin to crack down on how companies collect and handle user data, many are now figuring out how to operate under more restrictive policies. Facebook, however, will have a much harder time than most. As it turns out, the company can't actually tell where its user data comes from or where the, or where the data is stored. A leaked internal document seen by Engadget shed some light on the situation. Facebook's privacy engineers wrote that the company has no real way to keep track of the data it collects. Instead, the social media platform's quote-unquote open border systems gather and consolidate user data from a wide range of first- and third-party sources. Once the data is collected, there is no way to tell whether or not it came explicitly from Facebook. The report goes on to state how this would make committing to policy changes nearly impossible. And this must be a quote from that document. It says, quote, we do not have an adequate level of control and explainability over how our systems use data, and thus we can't confidently make controlled policy changes or external commitments such as we will not use X data for Y purpose. And yet that is exactly what regulators expect us to do, increasing our risk of mistakes and misrepresentation, unquote. The company's privacy team has submitted a plan to annotate data with Purpose Policy Framework, PPF. That is to say, tag it as being created on Facebook to keep track of first-party data. To do so, the company will need to funnel, quote-unquote, tens of thousands of uncontrolled data ingestion points into a, quote-unquote, choke point. Once in the choke point, the data will be annotated with PPF policy, allowing Facebook to accurately track the user data it would be responsible for. In August, Facebook announced that it would be pivoting toward, quote-unquote, privacy-enhancing technology for creating targeted advertising. Allegedly, the company was working to create a system that delivers personalized ads without needing data about individual users. All right, so that last bit there sounds like they're trying to do a, something like Google's been trying to do with Flock or Topics or something like that, where they're desperately trying to not kill the golden goose, which for them is user data, and find some compromised way of still being able to collect tons and tons of user data, but somehow in the process, protect user privacy. 
because I think they can see, and, and rightly so, that regulation's coming. I mean, it, it's just a matter of time. You know, years ago, I was very worried that it would never happen, but it really seems like, at least here in the United States, that on both sides of the aisle, both major parties in this country have reasons to want to rein in big tech and are seeing, uh, because there have been several documented cases uh, of where this has gone awry, what collecting all this data can do, like, like the negative repercussions of this. So anyway, I think it's coming, and obviously Google and Facebook and company and data brokers are trying to get out ahead of it, but it, it's obvious from this that they were not thinking about this all along. They were willy-nilly hoovering up all your data and not ever thinking that they would have to wrangle that data down the line. And so it's all being thrown into one big hopper and they don't know where it came from. And so they can't comply. Uh, I'm surprised this actually is not really biting them the butt in uh, Europe already with uh, GDPR. All right, two more articles and uh, the next two are, uh, are about Google. And this first one's from a, a website called Android Authority. And it says, Google is expanding its options for removing personally identifiable information, uh, often referred to as PII, from search results. If you don't want your phone number, email account, or home address listed in Google search results, you can now put in a request to remove them. For years now, Google has entertained requests to remove personal information uh, from search results, including bank account details or credit card numbers that would be used for financial fraud. The new policy follows increasing demand from people to remove their personal information from the internet. And this is a quote from a Google blog post. It says, quote, the availability of personal contact information online can be jarring, and it can be used in harmful ways, including for unwanted direct contact or even physical harm. And people have given us feedback that they would like the ability to remove this type of information from search in some cases, unquote. So how does this work? Google will evaluate removal requests to ensure it is not limiting the availability of helpful information. It will also not remove contact information that's part of public record on government websites or official sources. And I think that is a big loophole. I'll come back to that in a minute. It's important to note that removing your contact information from Google search is not the ultimate solution to not having it out there on the internet. The said information will still be accessible through other search engines. The best way to keep your information private is to reach out to websites that host it directly. You can head here, and there's a, a link in the article, to start removal requests for your personal information from Google. And I'll put that link in the show notes. The company says it typically processes requests within a few days. So this is interesting. It's got a lot of press. I've seen this headline pop up all over the place. But in reality, I'm, I'm honestly not sure what it's going to do. This sounds a lot like the, the European Union's right to be forgotten, uh, where you can try to request from search engines that you don't show up or certain parts of your life are removed from search engine results. It's really hard to do in practice. Uh, these search engines automatically crawl the web. You know, they're actually called web crawlers looking for new web pages that it hasn't found before and trying to index them, which means searching through all the text on there and trying to find all the keywords and, and your data honestly is out there in a lot of public places right now. I mean, go look at, this is called OSINT open source intelligence. There's a lot of public data records out there that in the old days, you would have to go down to some local county courthouse to find, but now you can just get them on the web, which means you can get them from anywhere on the planet. You know, your property tax records, your voting records, not who you voted for, but when you voted and what party affiliation you you had when you did that vote, court records of other various sources, you know, marriages and divorces and, and business stuff like your, you know, LLC paperwork or whatever, there's all sorts of information out there. And it, it's really hard. If you own a web domain, if you didn't get the who is privacy feature, when you did that, then you have to have public contact information for yourself on the web. If you bought a web domain, there's all sorts of ways to get this. So 
I'm not really sure how much Google can really do here and how effective this is going to be. But, you know, again, until, <laughs> until we get, you know, some regulation around this, this is where we are today. Uh, and so at least Google's trying. I, I don't know how successful this will be. All right, last up, this is uh, from Macworld. <laughs> you can see I read a lot of Mac websites. And this is about Brave and DuckDuckGo targeting something that, uh, called Google AMP or AMP. And uh, uh, let me read this article and then I'll explain a little bit more. Two major web developers on Wednesday announced updates designed to affect the functionality of Google's accelerated mobile page or AMP technology. The Brave browser and DuckDuckGo browser and extensions will give users the options to disable AMP. Why should you even care about AMP? You may not realize this, but when you're on an iPhone or iPad and you do a Google search and tap on a search result in an, to open a web page, that web page may be an AMP version, not the original websites. Google created AMP four years ago so that websites could, quote, provide a well-lit path to building great web-based experiences, unquote. Gotta love those euphemisms. In other words, AMP pages are supposed to load faster for the user, which can be especially useful on a mobile device. An AMP web page is produced using a subset of HTML, which is the language of the web. And AMP web pages are, quote, served directly from Google AMP cache, unquote, according to Google. Faster web page loads sound ideal from a user standpoint, but why are Brave, DuckDuckGo, and others providing the ability to block AMP? As you probably know, Google makes its money from its ability to collect user data and then serve ads based on that data on the web pages you browse. Brave, DuckDuckGo, and other companies believe that Google uses AMP as another means towards this end. You can learn more about AMP in the help section for Google Ads. In the four years since AMP was released, websites have gotten better at optimizing for mobile devices, so much so that Google stopped prioritizing AMP pages in, in its search results. So AMP really comes down to data tracking. In a blog post about its update, Brave states that AMP not only is bad for privacy and security, since Google tracks your habits, it allows Google to control the web experience and may not actually improve page loads. DuckDuckGo had similar comments in a tweet, and this is a comment, and this is from DuckDuckGo's tweet. It says, AMP technology is bad for privacy because it enables Google to track users even more, which is already a ton. And Google uses AMP to further entrench its monopoly, forcing the technology on publishers to buy prioritizing AMP links in search and favoring Google ads on AMP pages. And that's, that's the end of the quote from that. If Google's AMP implementation doesn't bother you at all, you don't really need to do anything. Google may serve up AMP pages when you use its search tool and you can continue on as usual. But if you don't want to peruse AMP pages, you can get control in a number of ways, and it lists three options. One, the Brave browser has its de-AMP feature available in its beta and nightly versions for the Mac and iOS. It will be available in the official release of the 1.38 version for the Mac and with the iOS version to follow. Number two, the DuckDuckGo browser for iOS and the Mac Safari extensions include options for not loading a Google AMP page and load the original web page. And then three, if you want to stick to Safari on your iPhone or iPad, you can use extensions like Amplosion for $2.99 uh, that automatically redirect from AMP pages to the original site. So again, this is quite clever on Google's part. Basically what they are doing is they have some really smart engineers and they have come up with ways to optimize web pages for the mobile experience. And all you have to do is hook into this AMP system. It's probably free. But what that means is it basically inserts Google between you and all these websites, meaning that Google knows that you've gone to this website. And then you're on Google's version of that website, which means it's probably laced with all sorts of tracking stuff. So that any interaction that you have on this page, including how long you take to read it, how many times you scroll, 
how your finger or mouse hovers over it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable what they can track uh, on a web page. And Google has really honestly, I mean, they've proposed a lot of really interesting ways for improving the efficiency of the internet and the, the protocols used by the internet, but they've really been very domineering in that space and, are, and have pushed a lot of changes to global internet standards that really favor them. And that's where this kind of thing gets super shady. So all of that leads nicely to my tip of the week, which is which is the most private browser? So as usual, I actually have a whole blog article on this. If you want to read more, you can just head to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, uh, and you can see the most recent article there. Or if you're a newsletter subscriber, it's already sitting in your inbox right now. But I'm going to summarize that here for you for the tip of the week. So I had an article about this several years ago uh, about choosing the safest browser. And I covered both security and privacy in that article. But really, over the years, what, what I've come to realize is that almost all of them at least try to be secure. I mean, there's no conflict of interest there. Security is better for everybody. And so, you know, Google Chrome and Safari and Edge and Firefox and, you know, all the big browser makers are constantly fixing bugs, which is great. And most of them put their fixes out very quickly, which is what you want, because all software has bugs, period. So what it really comes down to is how quickly do the makers of that software fix those bugs when those bugs are uh, revealed. And the other thing too, is that if you look at the top five browsers for the desktop today, Chrome has a astounding lead at 67% worldwide market share, followed by Edge and Safari, which are the built-in browsers for Windows and Mac OS respectively, and they're both sitting at about 10%. Firefox is right now around 8%, just shy of 8%. And Opera, which happens to be the uh, the one in the fifth place, is only around 3%. And then there's many, many, many others out there. But the thing to note about the top five is that three of those top five, those being Chrome, Edge, and Opera, are all based on Google's web engine called Chromium. So it's kind of like the heart of the web browser or like the engine of your car. It's like the thing that makes it go, right? So like the key piece of technology behind the Chrome browser is the engine Chromium. And because a lot of people don't want to reinvent the wheel, I mean, why would you? Google's Chromium is an open source project that could be used by other browsers and is used by other browsers. Microsoft Edge and Opera and many others are based on Chromium. And so from a security standpoint, when one of those has a bug, they all have a bug because more than likely the bug is going to be in the Chromium engine. So let's set security aside. Let's focus on privacy because that's really where browsers are differentiated. So I'll just jump right to it. For me, there's there are three major contenders in this space, and those are Brave, the Brave browser, Firefox, and the Tor browser. There are many others. In fact, DuckDuckGo just released its own standalone desktop browser, which is interesting. They've, they've had one for the, for the iPhone, which I've recommended in the past. And there's so many others, you know, Opera, Epic, Waterfox, Vivaldi. I mean, the, there's actually an amazing number of web browsers out there. I don't know how they survive. But looking at the privacy features, these are really the three that I think are best. And they, here's how they kind of compare. The main two really are Brave and Firefox. And if you're the kind of person who will actually get in there under the, under the hood and make changes and flip switches and turn knobs to, you know, make a browser bend to your will and, and make it, you know, turn up all the privacy settings and, and, and install several privacy, you know, plugins and things, then, then the best option for you is Firefox. Firefox out of the box isn't as private as it should be. 
It does block tracking. It does block third-party cookies by default, but it doesn't block ads by default. And also the big one is their default search engine is Google. And the reason their default search engine is Google is because Google pays them money and companies like this need money to survive. And unfortunately, I think the bulk of Firefox's income comes from this Google deal. It's not public knowledge what those figures are, but it's pretty well understood to be a, a lot of money. But if you're willing to put in the time and effort to harden Firefox, it is the best option uh, between Brave and Firefox. Now, Brave is really interesting. It's a very privacy-focused browser right out of the box without changing anything. It blocks ads and trackers and fingerprinting and all that great stuff without you having to do anything, which for a lot of people makes sense because a lot of people suffer from the tyranny of the default, which is they, they're not going to bother to find all these knobs and switches and try to tweak them, let alone try to find and install a bunch of privacy plugins for their browser, which by the way, I'll get back to here in a minute, which ones I recommend. So basically, if you're the kind of person that would actually put in the effort required to harden a browser and, and, and do some extra steps to get it really private and honestly get it the way you want it, then I would go for Firefox. If you're not that kind of person or if you're recommending, recommending this to someone else who's got zero technical ability or inclination to do these sorts of things, then Brave is a no-brainer choice. Both of those browsers are, are supported on Windows, Mac, iOS, Android, and Linux. And as far as plugins go for Firefox, there are several that I normally recommend. Ublock Origin, not Ublock, but Ublock Origin uh, is great. Probably my top choice. Privacy Badger from the EFF is a great one as well. DuckDuckGo's Privacy Essentials are good because that, that one alone will block these AMP pages that we just talked about. And then there's some other interesting ones you might look at as well, like Clear Earls or Skip Redirect. Uh, I'm not going to get into too much of what those are right now. Uh, but if you look them up, they'll, you can see the descriptions of what those do to help protect your privacy. The one weird thing about Brave I will mention is they've got this thing called Brave Rewards, which is based on the basic attention token, which is a type of cryptocurrency that they created. And it's their unique way of trying to still pay people to do advertising uh, and respect privacy. So basically, if you want to make a little, it's not really money, it's, <laughs> you can spend these brave, to these bat, you can spend these bat tokens on other stuff. It's, it's complicated. Honestly, I would just not do it. Uh, it's not on by default. I don't, I don't think with brave, it'll push it at you when you first install it. Hey, would you like to, you know, participate in brave rewards? I would just say no. But you're welcome to look into it. And, uh, you know, if you want to support some websites, it's an interesting idea. Uh, we'll see how, how that plays out. All right. Well, there's one other browser left in it that I mentioned. It's called the Tor browser. And the Tor browser is private, but it's more accurate to say that it's it's trying to be anonymous. I, I say trying to be because it's really, really hard to be 100% anonymous on the web. But the Tor browser does a very good job of getting you there. And it's complicated what it's doing under the covers, but it's easy to use. So it, you use it like any other web browser, but it's very limited. For one thing, it's very slow. The process that it takes, this onion routing that it does to protect your IP address and make sure that the other end can't see who you are, can't get your IP address, and nobody along the way can reasonably determine your IP address either. It goes through three layers of encrypted onion routing, and that really slows things down. It's gotten better over the years, but it, it's going to be noticeably slower. Also, you could do a lot less things with it, it because the more customizations you make to your browser, including what the window size is and what plugins you have and things like that, that makes you fingerprintable and they want you to try to not be fingerprintable. So it's got some weird restrictions, but if you want to give it a shot, like I would use it kind of as a secondary thing. Like I would make Brave or Firefox my, my daily driver, as they say, and then I would keep Tor browser on hand for those situations where I really want to try to be anonymous. 
All right, so there you go. That's my pick for the most private browser. All right, so there you have it. There's your news of the week. Real quick reminder, again, if you want to register to get a free year of Proton Mail's Plus service, which is like 50, 55, 60 bucks a year, it's in euro, so it, <laughs> it's hard to calculate exactly off the on the fly. Um, but it's definitely worth doing. I want to encourage you to just give it a try. Uh, they've got a great free account, but uh, if you want to sign up for one, shoot me an email from that account, from your new Proton account, and send it to proton at firewallsdontstopdragons.com, and uh, I will enter you to win. And just a quick tip, there haven't been a lot of people doing this yet. I mean, hopefully the people are signing up for the pre-account, but there haven't been a lot of people entering the thing, so your odds are, are pretty good. So get those entries in. Uh, it will end by Friday night this week. So get them in by the uh, 11.59 p.m. Eastern time uh, this coming Friday. Now, as I mentioned, I'm also going to be doing another promotion coming up soon for new patrons. I do that, you know, I don't know, a couple times a year or something like that. And I've got another one coming up soon, probably probably in a couple weeks. Uh, I want to get this Proton thing out of the way and give it a rest, and, and then we'll do another promotion. Seems like I've been doing lots of those lately. But I've got several things I want to do this year to broaden my audience, and one of those is going to be to get more patrons. So one of the things I'm going to be giving away, uh, as I often do with these promotions, is one of my super cool security-enhancing challenge coins. Uh, it's a really, really cool coin. I'm so, so glad I did this. And uh, part of the benefits you'll get when you join up is you'll get to see a making of video about all the things that went into making this coin, which was <laughs> quite the journey. But if you want to look at the coin and find out some more, you can either go to firewallsdontstopdragons.com and just search on challenge coin. There's a couple articles there that'll show you what they look like and some of the past promotions. Uh, or you can go to d20key.com. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes for rolling passphrases, and you can use this coin. One of the cool things about this coin is you can spin it and treat it like a d20 die to select random numbers and then use those random numbers to generate a passphrase, which is the security enhancing part. Anyway, so that's going to be part of the giveaway. I'm also restructuring some of the, the patron benefits. I'm adding some cool stuff for some of the higher levels. So anyway, stay tuned for more information on that. That'll probably be in two to three weeks. All right, everybody, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Next week, we'll have an interview, probably the one with David Reese from Malwarebytes about Stalkerware and plenty of other great interviews in the pipeline. I am booked out. I've got lots of great content waiting to uh, waiting to be published. Happy Cinco de Mayo. That'll be this week. I'll have to find some fun way to separate, uh, celebrate that myself, probably with a large margarita somewhere uh, sitting around with some friends. That'll be fun. So stay safe out there, everybody, and take care. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.